Good morning. Let's begin in prayer. Father God, as we come before you again this day, we are grateful, O Lord, to look unto you as our Father. We are grateful that you are mindful of us as children. Indeed, with the heart of a Father toward us, O Lord, you have drawn us together today that we may be in your house, that here you will meet with us and here you will speak to us. We thank you for your word, O Lord, which is profitable in all things. We thank you for your word and by your spirit, the way you bring it to our hearts to change and transform and to guide and to direct. We pray your help this day, O God. As we continue and take up this matter of anxiety and worry, Lord, we pray that you would subdue all fears, and Father, that you would indeed bring us into a greater place of contentment and submission in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Matthew 6. This will be our final lesson this morning, so turn to Matthew 6, and we'll read our passage once again. Matthew 6, and then we'll turn, of course to Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 25, our Lord says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. And Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thinking about our minds this morning, let's go ahead and read verses 8 and 9 as well. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Amen. Turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and then we'll turn to 2 Samuel 15. As we've been thinking about preventing anxious care, we have taken up two points already. First of all, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything, which we see in Philippians 4, 6. And then secondly, what we looked at last Lord's Day Believingly embrace God's all-sufficiency. Remember that key passage from Leviticus 26, verse 12. I am the Lord your God. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will walk among you. God walks with his people. He dwells with his people, taking full responsibility for the care of his people. If we rest in God's all-sufficiency, then it goes a long way toward preventing the anxiety and the worry about having what we need. Because God is more than sufficient for what we need, not only as Matthew 6 says, to supply our needs, but to do above and beyond everything that, anything that we could ask or imagine. And then, as we looked at last Lord's Day, God is able to make up our need when we do not have it. God is able to make our little be as much unto us, if that's what he has seen fit to give us. All in the way of resting on God's all-sufficiency, because he's God, he's Yahweh, he's the God of the covenant. Thirdly and finally, we look this morning at submission. Submissively humble yourself before God's will in your life. 
submissively humble yourself before God's will in your life. Because what we'll find out, and we know this in our own hearts, how often this is the case. It is, is it always the case? Maybe. But at least it's often the case, and possibly even most often the case, that when it comes to our inability or our struggle to submit to God, our struggle with anxiety and worry, it has to do with this area of submission. It's a battle of wills between what God wills for us and what we've willed for us. God wants one thing, which becomes very clear in his providential course with our lives, at least as far as how we can see what he's doing. So God wants one thing for us, but we want another thing. And we interpret what God does providentially, which, again, you can't read God's eternal decree in his providence, right? Uh, Even Christ was sent to the cross, and we see all of the troubles that his people faces. It's by much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. So God often afflicts his people. He tries his people. Why? Because as we've learned from Psalm 119, it's good that we're afflicted. Hebrews 12, we're being treated as children. And once we yield and submit to the trials and afflictions God brings, they bring forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. So God is doing good, but we judge God by what we see And because what we see isn't good, what we feel isn't good, what we think about what we see isn't good, we judge God as not good. Particularly boiling down to this issue of, that's not what I want. I don't want that. I want this instead. Why isn't God doing that? We can reflect very easily upon Israel in the wilderness, right? Coming out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, how often did they grumble? And so often the grumbling was what? We're not getting what we want. We don't want this. Even when they cried out for meat and God gave them meat, he brought judgment with them because of their rebellious hearts and their murmuring and complaining against him. So we look then this morning at humbling yourself before God's will, and we see two great instances. First of all, in 1 Samuel 3, 18 with Eli, beginning in verse 15. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel knew very well, you know the story, Samuel knew very well, or excuse me, Eli knew very well that Samuel had received a word from the Lord. And no doubt the fact that he knew it was a word for him, concerning him, shows even what the Lord was already doing in Eli's heart with regard to his conscience. Because we know what he did in verse 2. He didn't rebuke his children as he ought, his sons as he ought. So Samuel, excuse me, Eli knew that the Lord was going to deal with him on that matter. And so he said, you better tell me what he said to you because I know it's for me. That's what he's getting at. And the word had come to Samuel, not to Eli. And therefore, as he spoke it and hid nothing, you see immediately Eli's Submission. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Submitting to God's wisdom, submitting God to God's will, submitting to God's mind in the matter. Turn over to Second Samuel and see another instance of this, of course. <clears throat> in David, a man after God's own heart. David fleeing Jerusalem because of Absalom. And then in verse 24, those who follow him, of course, the priest comes and with the Levites, and of course, well, we're taking the ark. Of course we're taking the ark. David would, of course, take the ark. Why wouldn't he take the ark? Verse 24, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now imagine what's going on here, right? Of course, David would love to have the ark, even as Israel, traveling with the ark, knew that God was with them. David would love to have the ark and know that God is with him, God's manifest presence, God's manifest favor and approval going with David. But David also knows exactly what's happening. This is exactly what Nathan said. Right? The sword is going to come into your house and not depart from it. David knew this was God's judgment and chastisement upon him. So David didn't presume to take the ark as one who was 
fleeing, if you will, in the Lord's favor, but one that was under the hand of God in terms of his trial and his affliction. He was under the chastisement of God. And so the ark belongs where God has placed it, right? In the land, among his people, in the tabernacle. And so the ark is taken back. David knows what he must do. David knows, however hard it is, even fleeing and uh, from Saul and even going away from the manifest presence of God. You remember the Psalms, right? This longing to go back. When will I appear before you, O Lord? When will I come back to the sanctuary? This longing. Yet David knew that he was under the hand, the chastising hand of the Lord. And what must he do? However difficult it is, he must submit to it. And so he does. And we see his submission to the will of God. Again, the same, the same reference here. As Eli said, let him do what seems good to him. David says, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. Right? A submission to the mind of God, the wisdom of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. However God would manifest his providence and his governance in my life, I will submit to that. So we have two things to think about this morning. First of all, when it comes to submitting humbly to God's will in our lives, we need to submit our reason to God's will. And then, of course, we need to sit, submit, secondly, our will to God's will. And this is where we will come to see the battle of the wills. What does it mean to submit your reason to the mind and will of God? Well, this has to do with what you think is best for you. Right? What you think is best for you. In both instances there, let the Lord do with me what seems good to him, what he thinks is best with me. The Lord has assured us, go to Isaiah 43, a wonderful promise of the Lord our God. <clears throat> Isaiah 43, the Lord has assured us that it will go well for his people that he will dispose of our concerns for the best, even if through fire, even if through flood, or even, as Paul says, through many tribulations. Isaiah 43, But now thus says the Lord, Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, notice the reference to the covenant name of God. This is when God created his people, setting them apart, entering into covenant with his people through Abraham. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, a reference to all that God has done, all the making the covenant, creating you out of nothing, forming and shaping you for me. In light of all of that, having given you, as Paul would say in Romans 8.32, having given us his son, his greatest gift, how would he not also with him give us all things? This is what God is saying. I created you, I formed you, I covenanted with you. How will I not likewise care for you? It goes back to Matthew 6. How will he not care for you more than the, for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field? Think about this for a moment. This is your God. This is the covenant-making God. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the one who called you and formed you. And so he says then, verse 1, Fear not. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice the references. You are mine, this personal proprietorship. When you pass through the waters, God's not going to prevent those things. We're going to go through trials. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The Lord's speaking of their trials and their afflictions as waters and rivers. And yet, what a wonderful reference, right? What was the water they passed through? The Red Sea. What was the river they passed through? Jordan. And in both instances, dry ground, right? Through the Red Sea with Moses, through the Jordan with Joshua, and dry ground, a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. Whatever is ahead of you will be nothing different than what's behind you in which and at which point I showed you my faithfulness and that I am yours and you are mine. The covenant. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And here's why. Again, taking you right back to the beginning. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice the second half of the verse. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you a reference to the Lord slaying the firstborn of the Egyptians and yet sparing the Israelites firstborn. Not because they were holy, not because they were better, but because the Lord had made provision to pass over his people. He had made provision. He had provided redemption for the firstborn of Israel 
and they became his, of course, which was referenced in the Levites. You know the story. So the Lord here assures his people, and having shown his faithfulness in all of his providential and saving works, he's shown that it will go well for the people. Well, what if we come against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is behind us? It will still go well with you. What if we finally come up to the land and Jordan is ahead of us and it's overswelling its banks? The Lord is with you and he'll carry you through. What if there's a walled city that we can't penetrate? The Lord will go with you again and again and again. He has assured his people that it will go well. If we would but bring our heart to this, if we were but acquiesce to this, and fully satisfied in the fact that the Lord has told us it will go well with us, that he has promised and shown and covenanted that it will go well with us, it's so much easier to be content with what the Lord does. So much easier to rest in what the Lord does. David knew that it will go well with him. Even if he must be chastised, David knew it would go well with him. Because God had made a covenant with David. <laughs> you will not build my house, but I will raise up a son after you. He will build my house. And your son will be on. I will put a son on the throne forever. It would go well for David's cause. It would go well with David even if the Lord sees fit to chastise him and bring him into dark providences in the moment. What a wonderful help toward preventing anxiety if we but trust in the Lord's promise that it will go well for us. Now, we do believe this, of course. We believe that it will go well. We believe Isaiah 43 and the covenant. We believe it in theory. We believe it when it regards the circumstances of others, right? Isn't this the kind of counsel that we give people when they're in a difficult situation and they're fretting and worrying? It's like, brother, take heart. Sister, take heart. The Lord's promised to do you good. Read Jeremiah 32. Go to Isaiah 43. We believe this in theory. We believe it particularly with regard to others. We believe it even with our regard to ourselves in a general sense. The struggle is when it comes down to particulars. The struggle is when it comes to particular circumstances. Because we know that God says it will go well with us. And generally, if that's, you know, in, the, in the broad picture, if you will, we're committed to that and we submit and we understand that and we pray for that, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life. But when it comes to particular things, when it comes to weighty matters on which a large part of our comforts hang, right, a large part of our security seems to hang on these things, a large part of our estate. This is when our fearful hearts betray us and we struggle to submit and trust God. <laughs> and we say something like this, David Clarkson puts it this way, we say, if I should meet with such a loss like that, if I should lose such a loved one like that, if I should lose such a comfort like that, if I should lose such a considerable part of my livelihood, how could it possibly go well with me? How could it possibly be good for me if that was God's providence in my life? If that's what God did to me? How could it possibly go well with me if so grievous and so painful a trial struck so deeply into my interest, my comforts, my profit, my credit. It's okay if God takes general things. It's okay if general afflictions happen because we all go through tough things. But when the particular trial comes, it really tries us. We say, how can that be best for me? Which threatens to absolutely undo me. Which threatens to ruin me. It's okay if there's an affliction, a trial, pressure from one side. But when something comes that threatens to absolutely undo you, what do we say? There is no good in that. How can I rejoice in that? All we can think of, we think of Job, right? And while he was yet speaking, another servant came. While he was yet speaking, another servant. What did God leave for Job? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but a nagging wife who would be happy for him to curse God and die. Job had nothing. He was absolutely ruined, undone. Lost his wife, as far as all of her comforts and encouragement and support. Lost his friends, who turned into miserable physicians, terrible comforters. 
Why do we struggle so much at these points? Particularly because we don't see things as God sees them. We don't see as God sees. Our mind is not as God's mind. We mind our comfort more than our holiness, don't we? We mind our ease more than our sanctification. To put it this way, in this context, God doesn't care about your comfort. God cares about your holiness. Right? And if our comfort is a help to our holiness, then God sends comfort in abundance. But if our comforts become places where we begin to feel secure, or we begin to judge ourselves God's favorite, or we begin to think that nothing bad can happen to me, I'm safe, I'm protected. I'm on the other side of hardship. When we begin to think anything like that, the Lord strikes at our comfort to show us that our hope, our peace, our settlement is not in our comfort, in our estate, in our profit, in our credit, in anything. Our settlement, our peace is in God. So we have to learn to mind things as God minds them. And how do we know what God is minding? How do we know what God is thinking when trial comes? When God undoes us, when God ruins us, when his providence afflicts us to such a degree and we lose the very thing or things we said we could never lose. If I lose that, I would die. If God took that away, I would not be able to live another day. Those are often the things that God then takes to show us that we don't live upon right, the things of this life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So when we look at what God is doing in our lives, how do we know what he's minding? How do we know what he's up to? We go back to Isaiah 43. We go back to Jeremiah 32, 40, and 41. We go back to Romans 8, 28. We go back to the testimony of the truth and the character of God. That's what we know. We go back to the covenant where the Lord says, I will walk among you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will sanctify you, conform you, shape you. We go back to Romans 8, 28. Remember when we did that study? We go to Romans 8, 29. <laughs> so that we might be conformed to the image of the firstborn. That's why everything works out for good. That's what God is doing. He's conforming us to Christ. But there's no conforming to Christ without suffering with Christ. That's the whole point of Paul and Peter's epistles. There's no point that there's no way that we can be conformed to Christ without being conformed to him in his suffering because suffering comes before glory. Romans 8, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Again and again and again. We're being conformed to Christ. When these things come and we don't mind them as God does, what happens? Well, we get anxious. We're full of care. How to avoid it, how to change it, how to remove it. Whereas if our mind and heart were more subdued to the mind and will of God, we'd be able to be satisfied with what he knows to be best, however painful. What he knows to be good, however it looks. And we'd be at rest, not in the circumstances. Prison for Paul in Philippians was still prison. Suffering for Paul and stoning for Paul was still stoning. Rest is never found in the circumstances. Rest is found in the God of the circumstances. Rest is found in knowing that our God is God and governor of our circumstances. Turn to Psalm 24. Twenty-four, verse seventeen, or verse, excuse me, twenty-seven, verse fourteen. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen. Look at verse thirteen as well. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Therefore, we might say, "Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord." And go back and read Psalm 27. The trials and the difficulties, evildoers encamp against me. Right? And those who, the false witnesses, breathing out violence. Right? This is not a happy situation. The circumstance isn't good. And it's not changing. At least at this point. So how does the psalm end on such a good note? 
because I believe. By faith, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God is going to do good by these things. God's going to bring good out of this. Notice the reference to Yahweh, right? The covenant. Constant reference to the covenant name of God. Why? Because I'm resting on his promises. I'm resting on what he has done. It's what he has said. It's not a resting upon our righteousness, a resting upon what we deserve, and, and we've done our tit, and God's going to do his tat. No, rather, the Lord has promised, the Lord has covenanted, the Lord is true. He brought me into his land, the land of the living, the land where life is poured out by God. And in that land, again, I shall look upon the Lord and his goodness. So therefore, wait for the Lord, be strong in the face of opposition, discouragement, and doubt, and fear. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Tom, further, next Psalm, Psalm 28, verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. Notice that. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Even if the circumstances don't change. The Lord is still worthy of praise. The Lord is still worthy of glory and exultation because he is and ever will be Yahweh, our covenant-making and keeping God. So we need to labor then as a charge upon us. We need to labor for that quiet, humble submission unto God. We need to labor for the submission of our minds, our reason to God. God doesn't expect us to be to behave ignorantly. God doesn't expect us to, to behave foolishly. God expects us to use our reason and minds. He's given them to us, but reason is always subject to faith. Right? We don't judge God by our reason. We judge God by his revelation, how he has revealed himself, who he's revealed himself to be, how he's revealed himself in his saving acts and in his promises, and most of all in Christ. And we submit to those truths. And whatever we can't perceive and we can't make out and we can't logically reason, doesn't mean it's not true or not good or not right. We bring our reason and submit it to Scripture. So we should detest in ourselves that horrible pride, because that's what it is, that pride whereby we prefer our own judgments to those of infinite wisdom, and we advance our own will against that which is infinite goodness. Right? Who are we to think that we know better than God? How foolish to presume that we're wiser than God, that we know better than God what is good for us, what is best for us. But if we behave that, behave that way, then it'll be no surprise if we're filled with anxiety, we're filled with worry and fear. Because we continue to look at what God is doing and say, that's not good. There's no way that's good. There's nothing about that that is good. No good's going to come of it. How can it possibly work out for good? Turn to Psalm 4 and be reminded. It's what the world looks for, right? The world is chasing all over, running to and fro, looking for good. Everyone wants the good life. But remember what the psalmist says in verses 7 and 8. So verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There's the good life. The good life is being in the hands of God. The good life is being a child of God, being in covenant with God, the God who gives good, the God who does good, the God who is good. That's the good life. Turn to Isaiah 57, verse 20. <clears throat> By comparison, the Lord says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So when we behave foolishly, when we behave wickedly, when we challenge God with our reason and say it can't be, it won't be, we're behaving in a foolish manner, and there will be no peace for our hearts will continue to struggle with anxiety and worry and fear. Why? Because we're expecting God to do things 
the way we think he should do them. And when he doesn't, we're upset. And we can't be at peace. James, I think this is such a crucial point. And I appreciate the candor when you say, say you believe this in theory. I mean, it, you mm. know, I, I get up there, Ernie, and I get up and teach these same things. And it's, it's really easy for us yeah. to say yeah. this. Really easy. Um, but it, it's so critical. Um, one, one thing I would encourage people about is there is, there is an effort to bring fear Okay, and you can you want to go back to some of the things we learned at the conference about <clears throat> electronic sources, but there is this emphasis we're bombarded mm. with ways in which we need to be afraid. Yeah. And, we, and being Americans, we have to do something, you know, Invictus, you know, yeah. I'm the captain of my faith, you know, and, and so forth. And we mm. have to be, you know, the antidote to that, as we as we always say, is this teaching, yeah. these promises yeah. that you're That sounds easy in theory, but it, you got to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be overrun by mm-hmm. what's going on here. And, and add on to that artificial intelligence and how that's all going to be calibrated. Mm-hmm. And we need, we really need to be standing firm in the truths of the gospel, yeah. which is yeah. much greater than artificial intelligence and yeah. anything out there. Yeah. So I just can't tell you. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Yeah, praise the Lord, we do live, and that's a great point. We live in a culture that feeds fear, right? Yeah, because we live in a world that feeds fear, a world that doesn't trust uh, anyone, a world that suspects everyone, and a world that seeks to take advantage of everyone, right? So it's constant fear. But the reason for that is, go back to the whole point of the covenant, the reason for that is they don't have a God to care for them, right? And the challenge to God's people when we fall into and run after places of fear, the challenge of God's people is, oh, you have little faith. Don't you have a God to care for you? Right? That takes you back to Matthew chapter 6, right? The Lord cares for all these things. Don't you have a God to care for you? And how much more? Because he's not just a God up there somewhere, and we're down here so distantly, so distant from him, but rather our Father, the one who reveals himself to us, the one who covenanted with us, the one who comes to us in Christ, the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, and the one who pours himself out in care for us. This is a God that feeds, facilitates trust. This is a God you can trust. Takes me back to right what B.B. Warfield always said, it, will, it is always safe to trust God. It's safe, right? No place is safe except for the place of God's people. Because we're with God, we're under God, we're in God. God walks with his people and dwells among us. There's comfort and encouragement there. Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, Proverbs 1, 5, at the end, I'm trying mm-hmm. to memorize it. You know, the, the, the one who increases in learning of the scriptures will obtain guidance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Proverbs 1, 5. Yeah. And that's, that's the anchor to this. Yeah. God's holy word. Yeah, his declaration of himself, his promises upon which we can hang and trust. Yeah, amen. So we need to get our reason submissive to the mind and will of God, but then secondly, our will. Right? Secondly, then, we need to get our will more subdued to the will of God. So if you think about the mind, getting our reason subdued, up there we're, we're, we're dealing with the, the question of what you think is best for you. Now we're dealing with the thing. Now we're dealing with the matters that you desire for yourself, right? It's these are the things we want, right? So up above, it's what you think is best for you. Here, it's what you want. What you want out of life. What you want out of a situation. What you want out of a circumstances. What you want out of a marriage. Out of a family. Out of a job. You expect things and you want these things and you're pursuing these things. If they come, then all is well. But if they do not, what do we do? The question with which we begin, is why are we so anxious to have things a certain way and at a certain time, but because we've fixed our hearts on these things, right? We have fixed our heart on something. We've fallen in love with something. And when we fall in love with something that God has not necessarily determined to give us, but something that we expect God to do, something with, that we think is going to work out, something we want, we give our hearts up to these things and we're to a certain outcome or a certain timing, And we reject the possibility 
that it could turn out otherwise. Right? We reject the possibility that it could turn out otherwise because we know that if it turns out otherwise, just no good's going to come of that. It has to turn out this way. And how often have we judged God, convinced that God was going to do it this way? Convinced that God was going to come through? Because God always comes through. Sometimes at the 11th hour, but he always comes through. Well, what if he didn't? What if he didn't? What if he left you in Egypt for 430 years? He did come through at exactly the right time. Exodus 2, 23 to 25. The Lord remembered his covenant, saying, right now is the fullness of time. But it wasn't your time. It was 430 years later. You see, so we get our hearts fixed on these things, and we're determined that it has to go this way. And then we get ourselves convinced that, well, I, I've, I can see what God is doing. It's become very clear to me. God's going to do this. God's going to work it out this way. God's going to give me victory. God's going to give me the lead in this situation. And then it doesn't happen. Then what? We've got our, our will sold out, right? We're sold out to our own will in the matter. And we can't bear to be put off when God's providence turns out to be different than we desired. And what do we do? We murmur, we complain, we fret, and we try to prevent it, we try to change it, we try to fix it. This morning, reading through several chapters in Numbers, I'm reading the Bible chronologically this year. I'm in Numbers right now, reading through Numbers, and you find the Israelites, you remember? They come to the land, the 12 spies are sent in, 10 come back with a bad report, and they sway the people. And the people say, we can't go in the land. We're going to die there. We're as grasshoppers to these mighty giants. The Lord comes in anger. Moses is angry. The Lord is angry. And the Lord says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you all die off. And what you're worried about, your wives and children dying in the wilderness, your children are going to go in the land. And I'm going to protect them in the wilderness. And you're going to die in the wilderness. And they're the ones who's going to go into the land, which is exactly what the Lord does. So guess what? Israel's not happy with this now. Like, wait a minute. And of course, what was their cry? We can't go in there. Why did you bring us here, Moses? We told you we should go back to Egypt, and they tried to raise up a leader to go back to Egypt. And so the Lord says, okay, you're not going in. Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's not what we thought you would do. But now that that's what you're doing, we don't like it. Remember what they tried to do? Go into the land on their own. We're going to fix this. Oh, now we're ready. Now we're ready to go. And what did Moses say? Don't go. Don't go now, because the Lord's not with you. God was with you before, but you forfeited that. Now you don't go. But of course they went. And the Amalekites routed them, right? And many perished. There was no victory there. They could have had the land if they would have had it God's way. And what they thought was going to work out... What, go, go back to the first point. What they thought was going to be the worst for them. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. What they thought was going to be the worst for them was going to be the best for them. Why? Because as Joshua and Caleb said, the Lord is with us. They are like bread to us. We will rout them. We will overcome them. It doesn't matter if they're giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. The Lord will fight for us, which is exactly what the Lord wound up doing 40 years later. Even then, the children weren't any stronger or any better than the parents. But it was the right time and the Lord brought them into the land and he fought for them. And he pushed the Canaanites out, dispossessed the land so his people might have it. So it takes us to this point of realization that this is what happens when we see the Lord does things we don't like. We get upset. We're not happy. Why? Because our heart is still up here. And so we're angry, we're fretting, we're murmuring, and we're still determined to bring our condition to our heart. Like I'm, I'm determined to fix this. It's going to go my way one way or the other. Instead, the only way is to bring your heart down to your condition and say, it is the Lord. Let him do with me as seems good to him. And that is not easy. We all know how hard that is. But we also have walked with the Lord long enough, long enough to know how good that is when we do that. We have seen the Lord work situations out. We have seen the Lord when we have brought our heart to our condition do amazing things. And we have also seen that when we bring our heart to our condition, how often has it been the case that the Lord then raises the condition? But we need to be willing to be here and not be there 
until and if and when God says. But when we're determined to be there, when we say, regardless of what God wants, then the Lord will bring us down. Because it's more important that we be shaped, molded, sanctified than to get that condition. The condition isn't important. It's, heart, it's the heart that's important. It's the molding and fashion, being fashioned after Christ. That's what's important. A heart that surrenders, a heart that says, yes, the Lord's way is the best way. That's what's important. And go back to what I said. God doesn't care about your condition. God doesn't need you to be high for things to go well with you. God can make things go well with you when you're low. That's what we saw last week. God can take your little and make it much. God can give you more joy with little than the righteous have with much. Or excuse me, than the wicked have with much. God doesn't need a particular condition for things to go well with you. God needs you to be willing to be in any condition that he says is well for you. Because he's the one that, remember, go back to what we said in the beginning. He's the one that makes it well. No condition yields any good. Right? Look how bad the land wound up being for Israel. They gave themselves to the Canaanites, or to the gods of the Canaanites, and followed after the Canaanites. And they did exactly what the Lord said they would do and what Moses said they would do. When you get into the land and it goes prosperous with you, don't forget the Lord. What did God tell Moses? They're going to forget me. And they did. And they rebelled against the Lord. So it's not the condition that we need. It's a heart that submits to God. That's what we need. And so God will, God will, using this word in the right way, God will manipulate your conditions in whatever way is necessary to get at your heart, to get you submissive, to get you content, to get rid of the murmuring, the complaining, the rebelling. God will use any condition. He'll even send you into Babylon if that's what it takes, Right? It's not about the condition, it's about the Lord. It's about our hearts with regard to God. So, further, we're anxious in these situations when we things don't go the way we want. Third, uh, secondly, letter B, we're so eager to avoid afflictions, we're so anxious to get out of them when we're in them because we desire an easy, comfortable, and trouble-free life. Like we said earlier, we're more concerned about our comforts. God is more concerned about our holiness. God's more concerned about our heart. And when we determine and fix our heart upon a plan, again, we're so dead set on it that when God does something different in his providence, we get anxious, we get worried, and then we begin to fret. When the suffering comes and we can't avoid it, then we start worrying, well, what's it going to take from me? Will we ever be able to recover from the loss that we suffer by this trial? We begin to kind of look at our options, if you will, and we begin to see what our prospects are. How's, it going to, how's this going to work out? Am I going to come out of this okay? Am I going to come out of this ahead or behind? We begin to think these things through and try to, again, and then we start trying to manipulate the situation. We can't get out of it. Now we're in it. What do we do? Well, we start trying to change things and fix things and adjust things to advantage ourselves. But if we're more willing to let God have his way with us, if we're more resigned to his wisdom and his will for us, where would anxiety and worry be? It'd be gone. Because we're trusting God. We're waiting upon the Lord. We're submitting to God. We're doing what God gives us to do. It's not that we do nothing. We sit back, as we said last time, let go and let God. God calls us to put our hand to the plow. God calls us to be diligent. God calls us to do many things in circumstances like this, even things that contribute to deliverance. But where is your hope? And what are we pursuing and why? It's about the motives and the heart. The key is to find that what God is pleased with, pleases us. The key is to be pleased with what pleases the Lord. Matthew Henry has a quote. He puts it this way. <clears throat> I don't have this in your notes. but He says, When we see trouble coming, it becomes us to say not only the will of the Lord must be done and there's no remedy for it. In other words, God's going to do what He's going to do and I can't do anything about it. When we see trouble coming, it becomes us not to say not only the will of the Lord must be done and there's no remedy for it. But rather, let the will of the Lord be done. For his will is wisdom and he does all according to the counsel of it. It's not just, well, the Lord's obviously at the helm. All I can do is let the Lord lead. It's like, I'm glad God's at the helm. The Lord's at the helm. 
and he's wise. Matthew 6, O you of little faith, your heavenly Father knows. That's where the how much more comes from. Because the one in charge of it all is your Father, right? Go back to Psalm 27, Psalm 28, right? Where does the patience come from, the submission comes from? Because it is the Lord, it's Yahweh. He made covenant, he made promises, right? And so this, this ability to be able to look at situations when trouble is coming and say, the Lord's got the lead on this. He's wise, and he's going to do all things according to the counsel of his wisdom. When trouble comes, Henry goes on, it must allay our griefs that the will of the Lord is done. It is the Lord. It must allay our griefs. When trouble has come, it must allay our griefs that the will of the Lord has been done. That's where we find peace. And when we see trouble coming, it must silence our fears that the will of the Lord shall be done. And we ought to say, Amen. Let it be done. Now that's not easy. That's really, really difficult. But the reason it's difficult is because we get our heart set upon our hearts. right? We get our heart set upon our own will. We get our heart set upon a certain outcome and a certain thing and a certain expectation. And we don't like when God does things differently. Yeah. 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 Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Yeah. No, that's it. That's that tit for tat, right? We expect that when we've done certain things and we've lived a certain way, then of course God's going to give me this because I deserve it, right? And we wouldn't dare say that we're legalists or we believe in a works, righteous, works righteousness-based you know, arrangement with God. But that's the way the heart thinks. That's where the mind goes, right? Because that's where the devil goes. If you are the son of God, why are you being starved in the wilderness? Right? Why are you being starved? Turn these stones to bread. That's the, that is the, where our hearts go. And this is why we put our heart and put our mind in the right place, setting them upon things above, fixing them upon the revelation in Scripture. That's good. So the point we have to wrestle with here then <coughs> is that when our, when our anxiety is honestly examined, and again, this, you have to look at your own heart for this, but when our anxiety is honestly examined, how often is it a contest between our will and God's will? How often is it that the reason we're upset, the reason we're anxious, the reason we're worried, is because we're concerned, looking at our prospects, we're concerned that what God wills is not what we will. We're concerned that God has an outcome in mind that we may not like. We're concerned that the reason we're battling with God is because we're concerned that we want our way, and we don't really want God's way. Instead of being concerned that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're concerned to have our own will done. Whatever the will of God may be, we want our will done, all our will, and when, when we will it. We want God's will to yield to ours. And we want that not to be his will, which is. We don't like what God has done when he's done it. We want him to will nothing but what we will. And if God wills anything that we don't like, we try to hinder it. And if we possibly can, even change it. But what is this battle of wills but rebellion? A charge then here is that we need to humble ourselves for this. <clears throat> we need to beg God to give us a heart of flesh that will be more subdued to his will and to take away that heart of stone that would rather break than yield. Turn to Exodus chapter 5. <clears throat> None of us wants to be like Pharaoh. But so often what's going on in our heart is something like what went on in Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2, 
It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a fast, a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I'm Pharaoh. I'm the king of Egypt. Who is this Lord that the king should bow to him and his will? I do not know the Lord. That is, I do not acknowledge the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Exodus chapter 10, verse 7. After the eighth plague, the servants of Pharaoh begin to see clearly what's going on here. Pharaoh still has hardened his heart against God. Verse 7, Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man, Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men go. Notice that. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Let them go, Pharaoh. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? He didn't care about Egypt. What did he care about? His own pride. I'm not bowing to anybody, even at the cost of my own people, even at the cost of everything that God took by way of the plagues. I'm not bowing to anybody. I'm Pharaoh. I don't bow. I don't, moreover, I do not know the Lord. I, do, I refuse to acknowledge the Lord. So Moses and Aaron were brought before back to Pharaoh, and he said, Go and serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Well, okay, I'll obey so far. I'll submit so far. In other words, I'll submit, but on my terms. No, it's not that way at all. It's on the Lord's terms, period. And of course, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Turn to Numbers 17. Again, we're reading this passage this morning. <clears throat> we see how things have gone in chapter 14. The people rebel try to go into the land. The Lord's not with them. They're defeated in battle in chapter 14. Chapter 16, Korah's rebellion. Isn't that crazy? After what happened there, Korah rises up and Dathan and Abiram and rebel against Moses. And all those who died, whole families, earths opened up and swallowed them and closed, upon, closed after them. And then the 250 men with the censers you know, the incense, they come, they die before the Lord. The plague of the people, right? The plague the Lord sends upon the people in verse 49 of chapter 16, 14,700 people, right? On the next day, the people rise up and say, Moses, you're out of line. How would they dare say that after what just happened to Korah's family and Dathan and Abiram? And yet the people rise up and say, Moses, you're out of line here, and they're grumbling, and then almost 15,000 are slain in a plague by the Lord. And then they rise up again in the next chapter with regard to, to who's in charge here, right? Aaron and Miriam. Aaron's, Aaron's staff, rather, is budded in the 17th chapter. But I want you to look at verses 12 and 13. Finally, right? The next day, so they took a staff from every house put them before the Lord, and the next morning Aaron's staff sprouted with almonds. The next day, the Lord shows that it is to, the, to Moses and to Aaron particularly that the Lord speaks. He is the man, the priest. Look at verses 12 and 13. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? That's where they had to get, right? That's where they had to get to. We're undone, right? We can't come before the Lord. We go, anybody, if anybody approaches the Lord, he dies. We need a mediator. And the Lord has proven and made very clear, right? Moses speaks for me. Aaron mediates for me as the priest, Aaron and the Levites. Jews' reaction to Jesus in his day. It's the exact parallel mm. as them in this constant complaint. We see this great yeah. miracle of our Savior the works mm. of them, and they reject and reject. And until finally Peter says to them and preaches the gospel, yeah. and they said, We're undue. What must we do to be yeah. saved? Yeah. And then they hit, they, they, then they have the gospel. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's even of a greater magnitude. 
Yeah, yeah. But in the end, praise God, mm -hmm. Peter proclaims the Pentecost sermon, and it's the same outcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where we have to get to, though. You see what the Lord is doing. The Lord is humbling a people through whatever trial, how much ever loss is suffered. The Lord is bringing a people to a place of low, lowliness, right? A place of humility. God is after our heart. Thirdly, this morning, and finally, live in the view of eternity. Again, this is another way, preventing anxiety and worry, another way by which we are brought before the Lord in submission, submitting our reason to the will of God, submitting our will to the will of God. What a great help by living in the view of eternity. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. We don't have time to work through this point, but I want to show you at the end of chapter 4, remind you what Paul says here. <clears throat> Actually, I want to back up even later. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, and then 16 to 18. I want to read these together, and that will help wrap this point up. Verse 8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The charge here is to live in light of eternity and to remember that we are but pilgrims and strangers passing through this life. We're on a short journey a very short journey. The longest of lives, even 969 years, is but a moment compared to eternity. And the encouragement here at the end is to remember that and put that in perspective because the perspective changes everything. We give ourselves anxiously over the things of this life. We're so worried and anxious about the things of this life. But as Jesus says in Matthew 6, and as Clarkson makes clear here at the end, what do we do when we do that? What are we doing? We're robbing ourselves of the very peace we're seeking. Because peace is not to be found, remember, go back to Philippians 4. Peace is not to be found in particular circumstances. Peace can, is only found in the Lord, who is in charge of all circumstances. Right? The Lord who is more than sufficient, the Lord who is faithful, the Lord who is wise and good, who does all things according to the counsel and the wisdom of his will. And so we need to realize that what we, tend to, what we are being anxious about are things of a moment, things, things of a second, right? He has this, uh, he lays it out here. He said, when we consider that we must live after, after death more millions of years than there are minutes in our whole life and even more millions of ages than there are minutes in a million years, what is this life compared to that of an endless, everlasting duration? What does it matter? Candidly, what does it matter if this short journey is not pleasant? What does it really matter if it's not all that comfortable? If it's not filled with abundance? When this life is seen to be as brief as, as it is, what does it matter? Remember Hebrews 11, right? 8 to 16. Remember Abraham being promised a land he never owned, right? Being promised a land he never inherited. Was he discouraged? Well, he cried out to the Lord, and yet he trusted the Lord. And what gave him encouragement? What sustained him? He was looking, not for a land, but for a city whose builder and maker is God. Looking for something that only God could give. Because the key wasn't being brought into the land. The key was being brought by God into the land to live with God, under God. That was the key, right? That's why the Lord's answer to Abraham when he did say, what, what are you going to give me? I am your great reward. I'm your shield, your protector. And Hebrews 11 makes clear, given what we read in the narrative of the Old Testament, Genesis there, Hebrews 11 makes clear that their heart was set on God. It's being with God in the land of God, under the rule of God. That's what it's about, whether that's in Canaan or some other place. Right? And so we're hoping and resting in the promise then of God. So live in the view of eternity. And in light of eternity, which should be our greatest concern, 
Let us then, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that our Heavenly Father knows everything we need, and He'll supply it. He'll give it, whatever it is. And so we need not fret. We need not worry. We're called to a life of trust and faith. And we have a God who facilitates and encourages and enables that by His Spirit and Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for these lessons over these last several weeks on this passage. We ask that you would help us, O God, to repent of our anxiety and worry and fear. And we pray that you would cause us to be more prayerful about things, to go straight to prayer. Cause us, O God, to rest in and believe upon your all-sufficiency in every situation and circumstance, even for all of life. And cause us, O Lord, to be submissive, to submit our reason to your will to your mind, and to submit our will to your will, trusting in you and knowing that you do all things well. And it shall go well. It shall go well for the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.